This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. Mr. Chairman and friends, it's for five weeks now that we've allowed ourselves to be carried along uh, by a great stream, by the stream of the Bodhisattva ideal. And week by week we have managed to travel just a little farther. And as we've traveled, week by week, we have seen that the stream has, as it were, broadened. And we know that when this happens or when this begins to happen, we eventually reach a point when the stream, when the river is so broad, so wide, that we don't quite know, we aren't sure whether we are still in the stream or whether we have not started entering the great ocean. So this is the point that we reach today. Today we stand, in imagination at least, on the threshold of enlightenment. And in order to come to this point, in order to be able to take up this position, we have had to cover, in the course of the last five weeks, quite a lot of distance. We've seen unfold, week by week, many different aspects of the Bodhisattva ideal. We've seen how the Bodhisattva is the ideal Buddhist, one who lives for the sake of the enlightenment, the supreme enlightenment of all sentient beings whatsoever, that he is the embodiment, the living embodiment of wisdom and compassion. And we've also seen in some detail that one becomes a bodhisattva. One is born as a bodhisattva by virtue of the arising of what is called the bodhicitta, often translated as thought of enlightenment, but we saw that it is in fact something much more, something much greater than that, not just an idea, not just a concept of enlightenment in somebody's mind, not even in the bodhisattva's mind, but something transcendental, something universal. The bodhicitta is only one, but individual bodhisattvas participate in that one bodhicitta, each to the measure of his capacity. And this bodhicitta arises in a man or in a woman, transforming them into a bodhisattva in dependence upon certain conditions. And in this connection we examined Shantideva's supreme worship, a set of seven conditions in dependence upon which the bodhicitta arises, as well as Vajrabandhu's four factors in dependence upon which 
the bodhicitta arises. And further, we have seen in the course of the last so many weeks that though the bodhicitta itself is universal, the bodhisattva is an individual being. And the bodhicitta therefore expresses itself, universal though it may be, in his life and in his work, in a thoroughly individual, if not in a unique manner. And this individual, this unique expression of the bodhicitta in the life and in the work of the individual bodhisattva is what we describe, what is known in the Buddhist tradition as the bodhisattva's vow. And though we spoke, and though we speak in fact, of the bodhisattva's vow in the singular, in reality it is plural. And there are, you may recollect, several famous sets of vows, especially the four great vows of the Bodhisattva, which we examined in detail. We have seen even more than all this. We've seen that the Bodhisattva ideal represents a union of opposites. In general, it represents a union of the mundane and the transcendental. Sangsara and nirvana. And more specifically, it represents a union of the altruistic and the individualistic aspects of the spiritual life, as well as the masculine and the feminine approaches. Now, you may recollect that the first pair of opposites, that is to say, the altruistic and individualistic aspects of the spiritual life, are represented in the context of the Bodhisattva ideal, the Bodhisattva path, by dana, or giving, and sila, or uprightness, which are, of course, the first two paramitas, the first two perfections or transcendental virtues to be practiced by the Bodhisattva. And the second pair of opposites, that is to say the masculine and feminine approaches to the spiritual life, these are represented by the second pair of paramitas, the second pair of perfections, kshanti, or patience, and virya, which is vigor, or energy. Now, all of these we studied in some detail. We saw, for example, what was the Buddhist attitude, the traditional Buddhist attitude, towards such things as food, work, and marriage. We saw that the conservation and unification of energy was one of the central problems of the spiritual life. We saw that the, the Bodhisattva uh, is a spiritually bisexual being, and so on. And today we come to a pair of opposites still more rarefied, and we shall be seeing how the Bodhisattva synthesizes them in his life and his work and his spiritual experience. And this still more rarefied <coughs> pair of opposites is represented by dhyana on the one hand and prajna on the other. That is to say, by meditation in the widest sense and wisdom. And these two are, of course, the last two paramitas, the fifth and the sixth of the perfections of the transcendental virtues to be practiced by the Bodhisattva. 
And inasmuch as this lecture deals with the last two paramitas, uh, with the last two perfections or transcendental virtues, it is entitled On the Threshold of Enlightenment, because that is where we find ourselves when we practice, whether separately or together, wisdom and meditation, meditation and wisdom. These two between them represent the consummation of what is known as the establishment aspect of the bodhicitta. <coughs> now it's very difficult to know where to begin. We have here two vast subjects, meditation and wisdom. One could well speak on either of these for a very long time and perhaps not succeed in saying, in comparison with the enormity, the greatness of the subject matter, really very much. <clears throat> in any case, there's no question of trying to treat these two subjects exhaustively. All that can be offered in the course of the next 45 or 50 minutes is a more or less connected account of certain topics of importance. Now first of all, dhyana. Dhyana. We've translated this as meditation, which will do. It's good enough for practical purposes. But the term dhyana, like so many other Indian, Buddhist, Sanskrit and Pali terms, is really untranslatable but we shan't go very far wrong if we consider it as comprising two things first of all what we may describe as higher states of consciousness this is one of the meanings of dhyana simply higher states of consciousness supernormal states of consciousness states of consciousness above and beyond those of our ordinary, everyday, waking mind. And secondly, dhyana covers not only the higher states of consciousness themselves, but the various practices leading to the experience of these higher, these supernormal states of consciousness. Now, these higher states... These supernormal states of consciousness themselves are of two kinds, very broadly speaking. On the one hand, one has those higher states of consciousness which are still mundane, and on the other hand, those which are truly transcendental. What this distinction really means, we shall see perhaps a little later on. We're going to deal with each of these topics in turn. First of all, the higher states of consciousness, or the superconscious states. In Buddhist literature, in Buddhist tradition, there are quite a number of lists of these. And these lists, these sets as it were, represent different levels within the higher consciousness, or different dimensions of the higher consciousness. And today we're going to concern ourselves 
with three lists. And these are the four dhyanas of the world of form, the four formless dhyanas, and the three gates of liberation. These are the traditional terms, and the meaning, I hope, will emerge, will be disclosed as we progress. And if we go through these three lists, then we shall have some idea of the whole subject, some idea of what dhyana, in the sense of higher states of consciousness, really means. But we have to remember all the time that though we may understand what is said perfectly well, uh, this is no substitute for our own first-hand experience. Now, first of all, the four dhyanas of the world of form. And traditionally, there are two descriptions of these, or two ways of describing these, two ways of looking at these. One way, in terms of psychological analysis, trying to understand what psychological factors are present in each of these higher states of consciousness or superconscious states. The other approach, the other method of description is in terms of images, even visual images. And these two descriptions of these higher states of consciousness, one in terms of psychological analysis, the other in terms of images, these correspond to the two principal modes, as we may call them, of human communication, or the two principal languages which we use or may use. One, of course, is the language of ideas, the language of concepts. It's this sort of language which is spoken by, by science and by philosophy. And then there is the language of images, the language, if you like, of mental pictures, the, the language even of archetypes, uh, comprising such things as metaphors, myth and symbol, and so on. Now, Buddhism, as we've seen on other occasions, uses both of these languages. It speaks on occasions the language of concepts, of abstract ideas, abstract thought, and on occasions also it speaks the language of images, of myth, of symbol, of mental pictures. And both of these languages are of equal importance. One of these languages, that is to say the, the language of concepts, this appeals more to the conscious mind, to our conscious rational intelligence. But the other language, the language of images, which is much more concrete, much more vivid, much more pictorial, in a way much more deeply moving, this appeals to the unconscious depths uh, within ourselves. Now, most modern expositions of Buddhism, of the Buddha's teaching, fortunately or unfortunately, are given in terms of concepts. We have an awful lot about Buddhist thought, Buddhist philosophy, and so on. And sometimes reading through the literature, which is available, at least in English, on Buddhism, one gets the impression that Buddhism is 
perhaps one-sidedly, not to say overwhelmingly, intellectual. One almost gets the impression sometimes that if you really want to understand Buddhism, you have to undergo a rather rigorous course in Buddhist logic and metaphysics and epistemology and so on. But this is rather one-sided. We have to correct this sort of impression because Buddhism does use, traditional Buddhism does use, the non-conceptual method or mode of communication, uh, the communication through images. It does speak the language of images at least as frequently, at least as powerfully as it speaks the language of concepts, of abstract ideas. So we have to try to correct this sort of imbalance in the presentation of Buddhism in the West by encouraging various methods of non-conceptual, even perhaps non-verbal communication of the truth and the reality of the Buddha's teaching. There's a very beautiful example of this sort of thing in the life of the Buddha himself in the Zen tradition, which I'm sure practically everybody knows, but which it might be as well to call to mind. We know that sometimes the Buddha spoke at length, sometimes he discoursed, intellectually upon his spiritual experience but not always sometimes he resorted to more direct methods sometimes he spoke the language of symbols images and so on and this is what happened when one day on a very famous occasion when everybody was sitting around him silently the Buddha instead of speaking simply took from an attendant standing nearby a golden flower and he held it up he held up this golden flower in the midst of the assembly and he said nothing he said nothing at all he didn't even smile but Mahakashyapa one of the greatest of the disciples he <coughs> smiled because he understood what the Buddha meant he understood what the Buddha was trying to communicate through this non-verbal communication, this holding up of a golden flower. And this, we are told, was the origin of the Zen transmission. Just think of it. A great spiritual movement, one of the greatest forms, one of the biggest branches of Buddhism, spreading all over the Far East, producing hundreds of enlightened masters. And where did it spring from? not from a, a system of philosophy, not from a lengthy discourse by the Buddha, but according to tradition, from this one simple, symbolical action of the Buddha, this holding up of the golden flower. The whole of Zen, we may say, uh, was in the petals of that golden flower. And this is what Mahakashyapa understood, and that's why he smiled. He probably thought to himself that the Buddha has never done anything greater, never done anything more wonderful in his life than hold up that golden flower. And we may say that that golden flower, even now, all over the Far East, even over those parts of the West which now know about the Zen tradition, is shedding its light and shedding its luster. So this is one of the most famous instances, one of the most famous examples of this sort of thing. And this is the sort of language that we too have to learn to speak we're very ready, we're very glib with the language of ideas, the language of concepts. Uh, we can discuss perhaps Buddhist philosophy ad infinitum. We can talk the, the hind legs off the proverbial donkey. 
But we have to learn this other language. We have to learn to speak. We have to learn to communicate in this language of images. We have to immerse ourselves in, in myth and symbol and learn to experience this different dimension, this comparatively unfamiliar dimension of human communication. But this is a bit of a digression. So let's go back to our four dhyanas of the world of form. Our four superconscious states of the world of form. Four are enumerated usually, but sometimes five are enumerated. And this suggests, this, as it were, reminds us that we shouldn't take these divisions, these classifications, these enumerations too literally. They represent these four dhyanas as successively higher stages, successively higher states of psychic, of spiritual, development, which are in reality, or which in reality constitute one continuous, ever-unfolding process. All right, now for the description of these four states, or these four higher states of consciousness, in terms of psychological analysis. Now we'll, we'll speak for a little while, at least the language of Concepts before going on to speak the language of images. In terms of psychological analysis, the first dhyana, the first of these states of higher consciousness, is characterized by absence of all negative emotions. You've heard quite a bit about negative emotions in the course of these lectures and in the course of some of the lectures which preceded this series, but specifically in terms of the Buddhist tradition, the negative emotions are lust, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. In other words, the five mental hindrances as they're traditionally called. And the first jhana, the first state of higher consciousness, is characterized by an absence of negative emotions such as these. In other words, unless all negative emotions are inhibited, are suppressed, are suspended, unless the mind is clear, not only of the five mental hindrances, but of fear, of anger, of jealousy, of anxiety, of worry, of remorse, of guilt, unless the mind is completely free from all these negative emotions, at least for the time being, there is no entry into higher states of consciousness. So it's quite clear, it's quite evident what our initial task must be if we want to practice meditation seriously. It is to learn to be able to inhibit at least temporarily the grosser manifestations, at least, of all these negative emotions. And there are, of course, various methods of inhibiting, various methods with the help of which we can get rid of uh, these negative emotions such as lust, ill will, sloth and torpor and so on, fear, guilt, anxiety, jealousy, but we're not going into all that now. 
on the positive side, the first dhyana is characterized by a concentration and unification of all our psychophysical energies. Last week, I think it was, we saw that our energies are usually scattered. They usually are dispersed over a multiplicity of objects. Our energies leak away in various directions. They're wasted, they're blocked. But when we take up the practice of meditation, one of the things that happens is all our energies are brought together. Uh, Those energies which are blocked are unblocked. Those which are being wasted are checked in the waste. Uh, They're not wasted any longer. And all our energies in this way come together, they're concentrated, they're unified, they flow together as it were, And this flowing together of energy, this heightening of energy, this accumulation of energy, psychophysical energy, is characteristic of the first dhyana. It is, in fact, characteristic in increasing degrees of all four dhyanas. This unification, this concentration of all our energies, the energies of our total being. Now, this concentration and unification of energies is experienced in the first jhana as something intensely pleasurable. When all the energies come together, when there's no dissipation of energy, no division of energy, no conflict, no energy being wasted, no energy blocked, but everything flowing freely as it were and concentrated naturally on higher and higher levels, (coughs) then this is experienced as something extremely intensely pleasurable, even blissful. And the pleasurable sensation experienced in this first jhana is of two kinds. There's a purely mental aspect and there's also a physical aspect. The physical aspect is often described as rapture or preeti and it manifests in various ways. Uh, It may manifest by way of uh, somebody's hair, for instance, standing on end or it may manifest in the form of tears Some people, when they practice meditation, after a while start weeping violently. This is a manifestation of the preeti, the rapture, on the physical level. And it's a very good and healthy and positive manifestation, though it does pass away after some time. Now, the first jhana is also characterized by a certain amount of discursive mental activity. One can enter upon the first jhana having uh, suspended all negative emotions, uh, unified one's energies, uh, having uh, also experienced various pleasurable sensations, mentally and physically, but some vestige of mental activity, some vestige of discursive mental activity will still remain in the first jhana. It isn't enough to disturb concentration, but it is still present, a sort of little flickering mental activity, at least about the concentration, the meditation, the experience itself, at least about this, if not about anything else. <coughs> after a while, of course, it may seem as though the, the discursive mental activity recedes to the fringes of one's experience, one's concentration. It doesn't really disturb one when it's carrying on with one's practice, but a certain amount of mental activity is there. Hmm? So this is the first dhyana, the first state or stage of higher superconscious experience. 
Now in the second jhana, the mental activity, the discursive mental activity, which was one of the characteristics of the first jhana, this disappears. This fades away with increased concentration. So therefore the second jhana is a state of no thought. When one speaks in terms of no thought, uh, people often become a little afraid. They think that one almost ceases to exist when there is no thought. But it must be emphasized that there is simply no discursive mental activity. But at the same time, one is fully awake, one is aware, one is conscious. In fact, one's whole consciousness, one's whole being is heightened. If anything, you're more alert, more awake, more aware than you normally are. So even though the discursive mental activity fades away, even though the mind is no longer active in that sense, but still uh, a clear and pure, a bright state of awareness is experienced. One doesn't go into a sleepy state, one doesn't go into a coma, uh, one doesn't go into a sort of trance, nothing of that sort. And of course, in the second dhyana also, one's psychophysical energies become still more concentrated, still more unified, with the result that the pleasurable sensations of the first jhana persist, both the mental ones and the physical ones. Now in the third jhana, another change takes place. You notice in passing from the first to the second jhana, discursive mental activity is eliminated. Now in passing from the second jhana to the third jhana, it is the pleasurable physical sensations that disappear. The mind is blissful, but consciousness is increasingly withdrawn from the body, and these pleasurable, even blissful sensations are no longer experienced in the body or with the body, because consciousness, because awareness, is being withdrawn from the body. In fact, in this stage, bodily consciousness may be very peripheral indeed. It's as though you're conscious of your body a great way away, right on the periphery, of your experience, not right on your own doorstep, as it were, as is usually uh, the case. The other factors that remain in the third jhana as before, except that they are still further intensified. Now in the fourth jhana, another change occurs, or rather change occurs uh, in order to make it possible for the fourth jhana to be experienced, and that is that in the fourth jhana, even the mental experience of happiness disappears. Not, of course, that one becomes unhappy or uneasy in any way, but in the fourth jhana, the mind passes beyond pleasure and pain. And this is something which is rather difficult for us to understand. We can't help thinking of a state which is neither pleasure nor pain, as being a sort of neutral grey state rather lower than either pleasure or pain. But it isn't like that. In the fourth jhana, the mind passes beyond pleasure, beyond pain, beyond even the mental bliss of the previous jhanas, and it enters a state of what is called equanimity. And if one uh, can be paradoxical, one may say that the state of equanimity is even more pleasant than the pleasant state itself. Eh? But of course one can't say that it's more painful than the painful state. 
It doesn't work quite like that. It is something even more deeply satisfying, uh, put it in that way. It's sort of a positive peace, eh? which is even more blissful than bliss itself. Hmm? And in this stage of the fourth jhana, of course, all one's energies, the total energies of one's being, are fully integrated, so that this jhana, the fourth jhana, is a state, is a stage of perfect mental, perfect spiritual harmony and balance and equilibrium. So these are the four jhanas, the four states, the four superconscious states, the four states of higher consciousness in terms of psychological analysis. Now for the description in terms of images. And here we find the Buddha using four similes, one for each dhyana. He says, as it were, the first dhyana is like this, or one's experience in the first dhyana is like this. And you notice the Buddha is giving very ordinary, everyday sort of illustrations, but they're very, very apposite. He says, supposing there is a bath attendant. Now, they had such things, such people apparently, 2,500 years ago in India. So the Buddha says, suppose there is a bath attendant. And he's going about his usual work. And what does he do? He takes a handful of soap powder. Now, you might be rather surprised to hear that they had soap powder also in ancient India 2,500 years ago. And you may be still more surprised to learn that they get it from a soap tree. In India, soap grows on trees. And I've seen this. I've used this myself in South India. There's a tree which has a sort of fruit. And you dry this fruit and then you powder it and you get something almost exactly like soap powder. At least it works in exactly the same way. So the Buddha said, supposing this bath attendant takes a handful of soap powder and he mixes it with water. And he goes on mixing and kneading. And he mixes and he mixes. He kneads and he kneads until the soap powder is a ball fully, thoroughly saturated with moisture. It's so fully saturated that it can't absorb one more drop of water. And at the same time, no single speck of soap powder is unpermeated by the water. He said, the experience in the first dhyana is just like that. And then, the experience in the second dhyana. The Buddha said, this is like a great lake. And it's full of water. But the water doesn't come from the rainfall. There are no rivers, there are no streams which flow into this lake. But there is a subterranean inlet. Right deep down in the middle of the lake, there's a little inlet huh? where the fresh water bubbles up from the depths and gradually this fresh cool cold water which bubbles up from the depths in the middle of the lake extends throughout the waters of the lake and permeates them and this is he said what one's experience is like in the second dhyana and then the third dhyana experience here the buddha takes not just a lake of water but a lake of lotuses and he says, suppose you see great beds of lotus flowers, red and blue and white and yellow, growing in the midst of the water. So what is the state, what is the condition of these lotuses? 
He said they're fully in the water. Their roots are soaked in the water. Their stems are soaked. Their leaves are soaked. Even the petals of the blossoms are soaked in water. And they live there. They grow there in the water, soaked in the water, permeated by the water. They spring up from the water. So the Buddha said one's experience in the third dhyana is like that. And then he said one's experience in the fourth dhyana, what is that like? He said, supposing there is a man who on a very hot day, and as you know it can be very hot in India, suppose there is a man who on a very hot day takes a bath. <coughs> takes a bath, of course, as they do in India, in the open air, in a stream, in a tank. And then having bathed, he comes out feeling all fresh and cool and clean. And he takes a great length of white cloth, which is what they garb themselves in in India, and he wraps it round him and he sits down in this clean white cloth. Pure, clean, insulated. He said, this is what one feels like when one experiences the fourth dhyana, the fourth state of the higher consciousness. So these are the similes. Here the Buddha is speaking the language of images. But possibly you've got more out of this description than you've got out of the description in terms of psychological analysis. It may be that the Buddha's language of images spoke to you more closely, more, more intimately, perhaps even more truthfully than his language or concept. And one can see from these pictures, from these images, from these four similes, that there is a definite progressive order visible. As one passes from one dhyana, one superconscious state, to the next. First of all, there's a, a unification of the energies of the conscious mind. Huh? You remember in the first simile you've got two things. You've got water and you've got soap powder. There's a duality. There's a split. There's a division. But they're needed together. So first of all one has a state or an experience of complete unification of the energies of the conscious mind. Huh? This is what the first jhana really represents. Huh? Once the negative emotions have been put out of the way, a unification of all the energies of the conscious mind on the conscious level. And then what happens? Next, the energies of the superconscious mind begin to penetrate into the unified conscious mind, begin to bubble up within it, as it were, as a sort of source of inspiration, as you like. This is what is meant by the cool, clear, cold water bubbling up within the innermost recesses of the lake. It represents that trickling in, that percolating in, perhaps finally that pouring in of the superconscious energy, the superconscious forces, once one's energies have been unified on the level of the conscious mind. And next, these energies having started bubbling up within one or pouring down into one, Next, they take, as it were, complete possession, just like the lotuses, eh? being permeated by the, the water, their roots, their stems, their leaves, their flowers, their buds, everything permeated by the water. So in this third stage, the superconscious forces, the superconscious energies, coming from deep within, if you like, or coming from high up, if you like, they permeate, eh? they transform, they transmute the energies of the conscious mind. And finally, they not only permeate, 
but they dominate. Not only dominate, but they enclose and they enfold. Just like the, the man who has taken his bath being enclosed and enfolded by the white sheet in which he swathes himself. You notice that in the second dhyana, the superconscious, in the form of the water flowing in from the outlet, is contained, just like a seed, to change the metaphor, within the unified conscious. But in the fourth, it's the conscious, though of course the thoroughly transformed conscious, which is contained within the superconscious. So the situation has been completely reversed. Now all this could be represented visually. One is painting pictures, as it were, with words, but it could be done more directly with the brush, uh, with colours. And in fact, it's interesting to observe that Lama Govinda has done this. I remember many years ago I saw a series of what he called abstract paintings, four abstract paintings which represented uh, the four dhyanas, the four states, the four stages of higher consciousness. And as, in fact, I was thinking over this, uh, this lecture only this morning, it did occur to me that I could represent uh, the different kinds of experience in these four dhyanas in a diagrammatic form, just in black and white, like a sort of chart, which would make it still more clear, still more tangible, still more palpable, as it were. So much, then, for the four dhyanas of the world of form. We've spent rather a long time on them because of their central importance for the practice of meditation, for, in fact, the practice of the spiritual path generally. We're now turning to the four formless jhanas. Now, these four formless jhanas, which are often superimposed upon the four jhanas of the world of form, these are rather remote from the experience of most meditators, so we shall be dealing with them rather more briefly. Uh, they consist, one may say, in the experience of objects of ever-increasing degrees of subtlety and refinement. The first of these dhyanas of the formless world, these four states of higher consciousness associated with the formless world, this first one is known as the sphere of infinite space, or the experience, if you like, of infinite space. Here there's no visual image. You may recollect that uh, by the time we reached the fourth dhyana of the world of form, we had left behind the body consciousness. So what does that mean? There are no pictures in the mind. There are no images, no visual images. You don't think about your own body, you don't think about objects in the external world, you don't think about a house or a tree. So what is your experience like? It's devoid of all objects. So when you take away all objects, if you were to take away, for instance, uh, all the people in this room, take away all the chairs, take away all the pictures, take away all the lights, what have you got? You've just got space, empty space. And if furthermore you take away this whole city, you take away the whole globe itself, what have you got? Empty space. You take away the whole planetary system, the whole galactic system, what have you got? Empty space. So if you abstract yourself from the senses, 
through which these objects in space are perceived, you are left, as it were, with the experience of infinite space, space extending infinitely in all directions. But you can't even say in all directions because it would be extending in all directions from a point here. But there is no point here because there's no here. There's no there. Uh, physically, materially, spatially speaking. So it's just a great infinity of space, all of which is everywhere. Hmm? So this is the experience in the first of the dhyanas associated with the formless worlds. And then, secondly, the sphere of infinite consciousness, infinite vijnana, to use the original word. Uh, you reach this, we are told, by reflecting that you experienced infinite space. But there was an experience of infinite space. There was an awareness of infinite space. There was a consciousness of infinite space. So that means that conterminous with the infinity of space, there is an infinity of consciousness. The subjective correlative of that objective state or that objective experience so subtracting from or abstracting from the experience of space and concentrating upon the experience of consciousness, the infinity of consciousness, you experience infinite consciousness. Consciousness extending in all directions, but again, not from any particular point. Consciousness again, which is all present everywhere. And then something still more rarefied, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Here you really do take wing and you really do go very far, though you're still within the mundane, as we shall see uh, a little later on. You've gone from the object, the infinite object, to the infinite subject, as it were, and now you go beyond both. And you reach a state in which you cannot say, because there, in a sense, is no one to say, whether you're perceiving anything or whether you're not perceiving anything. Uh, you're not fully beyond subject and object, but you can no longer think in terms of or experience in terms of subject or object. So it's a sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. And then fourthly and lastly, the sphere of, it's usually translated as nothingness, but it's really no-thingness, the sphere of non-particularity. Eh? Uh, this means uh, a stage or a state or an experience in which you cannot pick out anything in particular as sort of distinct from any other thing. In our present state, in our present stage of experience, we can pick out, say, a flower as distinct from a tree. We can pick out a face as distinct from a house. Huh? But in this state, in this stage, there's no particular thingness of things. Huh? You can't identify this as this and that as that. It's not exactly as though... They're all confused or mixed up together. But the possibility of picking up doesn't exist. Huh? Now this is perhaps as nearly as one can get to it. So it's called the sphere of no-thingness. Not a state of blankness, not a state of nothingness, but of no-thingness. The particularity of things is abrogated. Now, the four dhyanas of the world of form... And the four formless dhyanas are all classified in the Buddhist tradition as mundane, worldly. Hmm? You might think we've gone a very great distance, but 
No. Uh, this is not enlightenment. These are superconscious, supernormal experiences. But they fall short of enlightenment. They're mundane. Uh, they're not worldly, of course, in the ordinary sense. They represent a very high degree indeed of unification and refinement of psychic energy. We can call them spiritual states, spiritual experiences, but they're still not transcendental. In other words, they have no direct contact as yet with ultimate reality. And in Buddhism, only that is called transcendental, which is either of the nature of ultimate reality or directly leading to, directly conducive to it. So it's this contact with ultimate reality from the heights of the mundane, from the heights of the superconscious, which now has to be made. And it's made when the concentrated mind, the mind in the dhyana state, whether higher or lower, turns with awareness from the mundane to the transcendental when it begins to contemplate reality. It's then that dhyana, it's then that the dhyana state becomes, from being mundane, transcendental. Now there are many different transcendental dhyanas and sometimes these transcendental dhyanas are called samadhis. And the difference among them is in accordance with the aspect of reality, the particular aspect of reality, which is contemplated. And amongst the most important, amongst the most vital and significant of these transcendental dhyanas, these samadhis, are a set of three technically known as the gateways to liberation. <coughs> First of all, and we'll deal with them quite briefly, first of all comes what is called the signless or the imageless samadhi. And here, in this dhyana, in this experience, this superconscious experience with a transcendental object, reality is contemplated as devoid of all conceptual constructions. One gets rid of all thoughts, all concepts about reality, one sees that reality is devoid of all these things, that they have no reference to, no bearing upon reality, that even the world, even the word reality itself is quite nonsensical, that there is no word, that there is no thought. And it's only when one comes to this no word and no thought, no concept, only then one can get at, one can see that reality, which is not reality. So here, in the signless, the imageless samadhi, one contemplates reality, not even using the word reality as devoid of all signs. Huh? All signs which might give the mind some hint of what to look for, in comparison with what? Devoid in the word of all ideas and all concepts. And then there is what is called the, the unbiased, or the directionless samadhi. The mind at this level, this level of dhyana, of superconscious experience, doesn't discriminate eh, between this and that. So it has no particular goal. Eh? It doesn't discriminate, it doesn't distinguish between the means and the end, here and now. There's no time sense even. Eh? 
No past, no present, no future. So the mind stays where it is, as it were. It's got no direction in which to go. And it contemplates reality also under this aspect, that it's got nowhere to go. No direction, no tendency, no bias towards this or that, because there is no this, there is no that. So this is what we call the unbiased or the directionless samadhi. And thirdly and lastly, there is the voidness samadhi. And here, reality is seen, reality is contemplated as having no self-nature. Uh, it has no characteristics of its own by which it might be recognized or distinguished from other things. Huh? You can't say that, uh, say, a chair is this, a human being is that, and shunyata, reality, is that. It's not anything as distinguished from any other thing or things as having a particular self-nature of its own. Huh? So this is what we call the voidness samadhi, the realization of the fact or the contemplation of reality under the aspect of having no recognizable, identifiable nature of its own distinct from the natures of other things. Now, with these transcendental samadhis, which represent, of course, a very lofty peak of spiritual experience indeed, we begin to pass from meditation, dhyana, with which we've been concerned hitherto, to prajna, or wisdom. But we'll deal with wisdom in a minute. Before we deal with wisdom, just a few more words about dhyana. We've dealt with dhyana in the sense of the higher states of consciousness, the superconscious states. But we now have to deal with the second great meaning of dhyana, uh, dhyana in the sense of the practices leading to these higher states of consciousness. But we're going to be very, very brief here. Uh, we could, of course, explain the five basic meditation exercises, I could speak at length of the preparations for meditation, could describe the experiences or some of the experiences occurring in the course of practice. But we've no time for all that. And in any case, uh, these topics have been dealt with uh, on a number of other occasions before. Today I'm going to limit myself just to one observation under this heading. And that is that dhyana, in the sense of the experience of superconscious states, is a natural thing. A natural thing. Ideally, as soon as one goes into the meditation room, whether it's the shrine at Sakura or a corner of one's own house, as soon as one goes there, as soon as one sits down, as soon as one crosses one's legs, as soon as one closes one's eyes, as soon as one does all this, one should go straight into dhyana. It should be as natural, it should be as easy as that. In fact, we may say that if we let a normal, if we let a truly human life, 
if we had spent the previous day or the previous week, the previous month, the previous year properly, this might well happen. No reason why it shouldn't happen. That as soon as we sit down, cross our legs, close our eyes, we just go quite naturally into the dhyana state, the superconscious state. But I hardly need tell you, it seems almost cruel to mention it, that, that this is not what happens. Eh? We all have to strive and to struggle and to sweat and sometimes to swear under our breath and to feel disappointed and it isn't worth the effort that we are making fools of ourselves and we might just as well be at the cinema or watching the television and so on. So this is what usually happens. We have to strive and struggle. But strive and struggle to do what? We don't have to strive and struggle to meditate. No. We don't have to strive and struggle to get into the dhyana state. No. Not that. We have to strive and struggle to remove the obstacles. We have to strive and struggle to remove, for example, the five mental hindrances. If we could only remove them, then we go sailing at least into the first jhana. So most of what we call meditation exercises do not lead directly to higher states of consciousness. They simply help us remove the obstacles. Concentrate on mindfulness of breathing, it removes the obstacle of distraction. Concentrate on the metta bhavana, it removes the distraction of ill will. So just remove the obstacles with the help of these methods and then the higher states, or at least the first of the higher states, will naturally manifest themselves. Now, the Bodhisattva does not simply practice dhyana, meditation. The Bodhisattva practices dhyana paramita, the perfection of meditation, transcendental meditation. In other words, he practices meditation so as to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all. He doesn't practice it for the sake of his own peace of mind, though that comes. He doesn't practice it so that he may go to heaven, though even that may come if he wants. He practices meditation, he practices dhyana as one aspect of the path which will lead him one day to enlightenment, supreme enlightenment, for the benefit of all. Finally, we may say that the bodhisattvas practice of meditation does not exclude external activity. Does not exclude external activity. In our case, if we want to meditate, we have to stop external activities. We can't do both at the same time. We have to retire. We have to find a quiet place, a quiet corner. We have to sit still. We have to close our eyes, cross our legs, and all the rest of it. Huh? But the Bodhisattva is practicing something much greater, something much higher. Hmm? The Bodhisattva is able, or should be able, to do both simultaneously. And the the scriptures stress this very, very much in a number of places. 
that internally he should be immersed in dhyana, but externally carrying on various activities. Not that he suffers from a sort of partial schizophrenia or anything like that. What appear to us to be two contradictory things in the case of the Bodhisattva are one thing. The activity is the external aspect of the inner meditation. The inner meditation is the inner dimension of the external activity, the two sides of a single coin, as it were. So this is how the Bodhisattva practices meditation. He practices it as not excluding external activity. So this, of course, should eventually be our aim too, But in the meanwhile, we mustn't delude ourselves and we have to recognize that for us, for a very, very long time to come, uh, meditation will exclude external activity, external activity will exclude meditation. Even though we should certainly try to see that the effects of our meditation, our meditation experience, persist and carry over into our everyday life and activities. But it will be a very, very long time before we can meditate just as we meditate at our best on our meditation cushion, when we're in the midst of the traffic, when we're washing up, and so on. But that should be our ultimate (coughs) aim. However, it's time we passed on now to prajna, which is the sixth and last paramita, the sixth and last perfection or transcendental virtue. And... Prajna is from the Sanskrit root gnya, which means simply to know. And pra, which comes before it, is simply an emphatic prefix. And prajna is therefore knowledge in the extreme, or knowledge par excellence. And this means, of course, knowledge of reality. Prajna is knowledge of reality. And the word for reality in this connection, not that words really matter very much, the word for reality in this connection is shunyata, which literally means the voidness, emptiness. But of course it's not emptiness as opposed to fullness. It indicates, the word shunyata indicates a state beyond opposites, a state beyond words. Now, shunyata is the subject matter of the perfection of wisdom group of sutras. And the perfection of wisdom group of sutras is one of the most important of all the different groups of Mahayana Buddhist scriptures. There are, incidentally, well over 30 different Perfection of wisdom texts, perfection of wisdom scriptures. Some are very long. Uh, The longest is 100,000 verses. And some, on the other hand, are very short. Among the shorter versions are the well-known Diamond Sutra and the equally well-known Heart Sutra. And these two present the essentials of the whole perfection of wisdom teaching and experience in a highly condensed form. Uh, But this is just by the way. Shunyata then is reality. And knowledge of reality means knowledge 
of shunyata. And knowledge of shunyata is pragna or wisdom. And we find that four main degrees of shunyata are enumerated. Some texts speak of 20, even 32 degrees, but really there are four main degrees of shunyata, emptiness, voidness. And these are not four different kinds of reality, they represent four progressively deeper stages of penetration by wisdom into ultimate reality. And these four will give us some idea of the nature and content of pragna or wisdom. Though as we go through them, we shouldn't forget that these are all conceptual constructions or conceptual presentations, not the real thing, not the experience itself. They are all only fingers pointing to the moon. If we can get a glimpse of the moon with the help of these fingers, then we shall be lucky. First of all, what is called emptiness of the conditioned, or Sanskrita shunyata. This means that conditioned existence, phenomenal existence, if you like, relative existence, is devoid of the characteristics of the unconditioned, the absolute, the truth. The characteristics of the unconditioned, of the absolute in Buddhism are, first of all, bliss. Secondly, permanence. That it is beyond time, not that it persists in time, but that it occupies, as it were, a dimension in which time itself does not exist. And then thirdly, true being, ultimate reality. Now conditioned existence, phenomenal existence, relative existence, is devoid of these. Devoid of these three characteristics of the unconditioned. Relative existence, on the contrary, is unsatisfactory, it's impermanent, and it is not ultimately real. And for this reason the conditioned is said to be empty of the unconditioned. And it means, or this means, that we should not expect to find in the flux of relative existence what only the absolute, only the unconditioned can give us. So the conditioned is said to be empty. And this is the first of the four kinds of shunyata. When we see that the conditioned is empty of the unconditioned. Secondly, emptiness of the unconditioned, a Sanskrit shunyata. Here we see, or wisdom sees, that the unconditioned is devoid of the characteristics of conditioned existence. Conditioned existence is unsatisfactory, riddled with unhappiness, it's impermanent, and it's not wholly real. But the unconditioned, the absolute, is devoid of these characteristics of relative existence, the conditioned. The unconditioned is the, the locus, as we may say, of bliss, of permanence, beyond time, true being, and so on. Therefore we say, or therefore we speak in terms of, therefore we see, the emptiness 
of the unconditioned, that the unconditioned is empty of the conditioned. Just as in the conditioned you will not find the unconditioned, in the unconditioned you will not find the conditioned. So these first two kinds of voidness, emptiness of the conditioned, emptiness of the unconditioned, the two being mutually exclusive as it were, these two forms of shunyata are common to all forms of Buddhism. And they represent, obviously, a comparatively dualistic approach. That the conditioned is not the unconditioned. The unconditioned is not the conditioned. This world is not that world. That world is not this world. The conditioned is empty of the unconditioned. The unconditioned is empty of the conditioned. So this, as I, I say, represents the comparatively dualistic approach. But this sort of dualistic approach is necessary at first as the sort of working basis of our spiritual life in its early stages. We have to make this distinction, we have to make this division. We have to think to begin with, well, here is the conditioned and there is the unconditioned. I want to get from here to there. This is how we cannot help thinking in the early stages of our spiritual life. So we take as our working basis, as it were, this duality of the conditioned and the unconditioned, mutually exclusive, the one not being found in the other. Now the third and fourth kinds of shunyata are peculiar to the Mahayana. The third kind of shunyata is what we call great emptiness, Mahashunyata. In the Mahayana, Maha always means pertaining to shunyata. The Mahayana is the vehicle of shunyata. The Bodhisattva is the Mahasattva also, the being born out of the voidness, as it were. So, thirdly, the great emptiness, the Mahashunyata. And in what does this consist? How is this empty? How is this void? This consists in the emptiness of the distinction between the conditioned and the unconditioned. We see that the distinction between the conditioned and the unconditioned is not ultimately valid. See that it's a product of dualistic thinking. We may spend 10, 15, 20, 30 years of our spiritual life working on the assumption that the condition is the condition and the unconditioned is the, is the unconditioned. And that is necessary. That's very good. That's right. But eventually we have to learn to see the emptiness of the distinction between these two, the conditioned and the unconditioned. We have to see that this distinction is not ultimately valid and that it is, as I've said, a product of our dualistic thinking and ultimately to be transcended. We have to see, and not just intellectually theorize, not just speculate, not just think. We have to see, we have to experience the arupa and shunyata the form and voidness, the condition and the unconditioned, samsara itself, the wheel, the spiral, the goal, ordinary beings and Buddhas are ultimately of one and the same essence, one and the same reality. And this is Mahashunyata, the great emptiness, the great void in which, as it were, all distinctions, all dualisms are swallowed up, are lost, are obliterated so that they simply don't exist anymore. And it's this great void, of course, into which people, even spiritual people, are so afraid of disappearing. They want to cling on to their dualistic ways of thinking, self and others, this and that. But eventually they must all be swallowed up. And this is the real tiger's cave. Huh? 
the tiger's cave, of course, is remarkable for the fact that many tracks lead into it, or up to it, but none come out. <laughs> so the great void is like this. You get into it, huh? but you never come out. This is why you want to go into it. Huh? So this is great emptiness, huh? maha shunyata, the third degree or level of penetration into reality. And fourthly, emptiness of emptiness. Shunyata, shunyata. And what could that possibly be? Here we see that emptiness itself is only a concept, only a word, only a sound. Even maha shunyata, you're still hanging on to subtle thoughts, subtle dualistic experiences. So even this ultimately has to be abandoned. And when this is abandoned, when you come to shunyata, shunyata, well, there's just nothing to be said. All that is left is a great silence. And, of course, it's a significant silence. It's a thunderous silence. And these are the four degrees of shunyata. And as I said, they represent successively more advanced stages of penetration into reality. And what penetrates, what breaks through, if you like, is pragna, wisdom. A few minutes ago I referred to the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is so called because it contains the heart or the essence or the gist of the whole body of perfection of wisdom teachings. And the heart of the heart, Sutra, is contained in its concluding mantra, which, as most of you know, runs gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhi, swaha, which being interpreted literally, and the literal meaning doesn't give the real meaning, goes something like this. Gone. Gone. Gone beyond. Gone altogether beyond. Enlightenment. Success. Now the words of the mantra refer to the four degrees of shunyata. Gone. Gone. What does this mean? Gone from conditioned existence. Hmm? Gone from relative existence. Gone from the world. Hmm? In other words, the first degree of shunyata, the Sanskrita shunyata, experience of the emptiness of the conditioned, as a result of which you leave it. Hmm? You go forth from it. So gone, gone. And then gone beyond. When you leave the condition, where do you go to? Well, you go to the unconditioned. There's nowhere else to go. You go to the unconditioned. You go beyond. And this represents the second degree of shunyata, the asangskrita shunyata, the emptiness of the unconditioned. You go to the unconditioned. You go beyond because the unconditioned is empty of the condition. You don't want to have anything more to do with the condition. And in the unconditioned, there's no trace of the condition. And then, gone altogether beyond, 
altogether beyond, beyond the distinction between the conditioned and the unconditioned. And this represents the third degree, Mahashunyata, the great whiteness, when you go beyond the very distinction between conditioned and unconditioned, and then you really and truly do go altogether beyond. And then enlightenment, bodhi. There's no structure, there's no sentence here, it's just the word. The exclamation, bodhi, enlightenment, awakening. And here, in enlightenment, in the ultimate awakening, the idea of shunyata itself is transcended. So it's as though when you come there, having traversed these three degrees of shunyata, when you come to the fourth, you can only, as it were, open your arms and say, in Alan Watts' phrase, this is it, enlightenment, awakening. And this is the word in the mantra, bodhi. And then, svaha, or swaha. This is a, a word indicating auspiciousness, success, achievement, and it often comes at the end of a mantra. It means you've done your task, you've done your work, you've achieved success, yeah? you've reached your goal, you're in life. It means that all four degrees of shunyata have been traversed. It means that prajna, wisdom, has been fully developed and success, true success, has been achieved. Now, the foregoing account of wisdom has been progressive. In other words, it's been an account in terms of more and more advanced stages of penetration into reality. But there's another teaching, there's another tradition which unfolds, as it were, simultaneously different aspects, various aspects, various dimensions, if you like, of wisdom. And this is the teaching of what are known as the five jnanas, the five knowledges or the five wisdoms. And we'll conclude with an account of these wisdoms. These will give us further insight, perhaps, into the nature of wisdom, prajna, with a capital W. First, what is known as the knowledge or wisdom of the Dharma Dhatu. Knowledge or wisdom of the Dharma Dhatu, and this is the basic wisdom, for which the other four are subsidiary aspects or special aspects. Now, the term Dharmadhatu is a rather difficult one. Dhatu means a sort of sphere. It means a realm or a field, if you like. And here it represents the whole cosmos, the whole universe. Dharma here means reality, truth, the ultimate. So the Dharmadhatu means the universe, the whole cosmos, considered as the sphere of the manifestation of reality. Or Dharmadhatu means the universe or the cosmos conceived of as fully pervaded by reality. Just as the comparison goes, the whole of space is filled with, permeated by the sun's beams, the sun's rays. In the same way, the whole of existence, the whole cosmos, the whole universe, with all its galactic systems, its suns and its worlds, and its races and its gods and its men, they're all pervaded or it is all pervaded by reality itself is a sort of field for the manifestation of reality, for the play, if you like, 
expression, the exuberance of reality. So that wisdom of the Dharmadhatu means knowledge of, direct knowledge, experience of, the whole cosmos as pervaded by, non different from reality. Not that the cosmos is wiped out, not that it's obliterated. You see it still, it's still all there. The houses and the trees, the fields, yeah, the men and the women, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're all there, just as they were before. But now they are pervaded by, permeated by reality. And you see both at the same time. Huh? One doesn't obstruct the other. You see the cosmos, you see reality. You see reality, you see the cosmos. Cosmos is reality, reality is cosmos. Rupa is shunyata, shunyata is rupa. One doesn't obstruct the other, they interpenetrate. And this is the Dharmadhatu. And knowledge of this is knowledge or wisdom of the Dharmadhatu. And this knowledge or wisdom of the Dharmadhatu is symbolized by the figure of Varochana, the illuminator. The illuminator like the sun, the sun Buddha, as he is sometimes called, or the white Buddha, as he is more usually described. Then, secondly, the mirror-like wisdom. The wisdom which is like a mirror. Because the enlightened mind sees everything. The enlightened mind understands the true nature of everything. It reflects everything. Just as the mirror reflects all objects. In this way, the enlightened mind reflects everything. If you look into the depths of the enlightened mind, you see everything. Just as uh, Sujana, in his pilgrimage, when he reached the Varujana's Tar in South India, when he walked inside... What did he see? He saw the whole universe, the whole cosmos mirrored. Because Varochana's tower symbolized the bodhicitta, the enlightened mind itself. So the enlightened mind reflects all the objects of the world. Everything that exists, they're all reflected in the depths of the enlightened mind. But the enlightened mind is not affected by them. They don't stick. If you take a mirror and you place an object in front of it, the object is reflected. You take that object away, put another in front of the mirror, the mirror reflects that. Or you move the mirror. You don't find the reflection sticking when you move the mirror or you move the object. So the enlightened mind is just like that. Nothing sticks. It reflects, but nothing sticks. Whereas our mind, of course, is quite different. If you pursue the the illustration, you may say that our mind is a sort of mirror where all the reflections stick. Not only stick, but they sort of congeal and they get all jammed up together. And sometimes the mirror sticks to the object and you can't separate them. So in other words, in the enlightened mind, there's no subjective reaction, no subjective attachment. There's pure, perfect objectivity. Just like a mirror reflecting everything that exists. So this is the mirror-like wisdom, which sees everything, knows everything, understands everything, but doesn't (coughs) stick, doesn't stop anywhere. And this mirror-like wisdom is symbolized by Akshobhya, the imperturbable, the dark blue Buddha. Thirdly, the wisdom of equality or sameness. The enlightened mind sees everything with complete objectivity. There's no reaction, there's no sticking. The enlightened mind seems to sees the same reality in all, the same shunyata in all, equally. So the enlightened mind has the same attitude towards all. Right? It sees that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, a flower is a flower, a tree is a tree, 
A house is a house, a cathedral is a cathedral, the sun is the sun and the moon is the moon. It sees all that, but it sees at the same time the same, the common reality in all. So it has a same, a common attitude towards all. It's equal, it's equal-minded. The enlightened mind is equal-minded towards all. There's the same love, the same compassion for all, without any distinction, without any discrimination. Sometimes it's said that the, the love and the compassion of the enlightened mind fall without discrimination on all beings, on all objects, on all things, just like the sun's rays falling, now on the golden roofs of a palace and now on a dunghill. It is the same sun. It doesn't mind whether it gilds the, the gilded roof of the palace or, or the dunghill. It's the same. It shines alike. So the enlightened mind is just like that, shining in the same way with its love and its compassion on high and low, so-called good and so-called bad. And this wisdom of equality or sameness, which is the same, which is even towards all, is symbolized by Ratna Sambhava, the jewel-born, the yellow Buddha. <coughs> Fourthly, the all-distinguishing wisdom, the mirror we've seen reflects all things equally, but at the same time we've seen it doesn't confuse or blur their distinctive features. The mirror will reflect the tiniest detail. It'll be clear and distinct in the mirror. Hmm? So this is very important. Huh? And it means that the enlightened mind doesn't see things only in their unity or only in their diversity. It sees both together. Hmm? The enlightened mind, especially under its aspect of the all-distinguishing wisdom, doesn't only see the unity of things, it sees the differences of things, the uniqueness of things, and it sees both of these together. It doesn't reduce the plurality to a unity. It doesn't reduce the unity to a plurality. It sees the unity and the plurality, the unity and the difference. So that Buddhism, on the philosophical level, intellectually speaking, is neither a monism in which all differences are cancelled out, uh, neither is it a pluralism in which all Unity uh, disappears. It's neither monistic nor pluralistic. In the Buddhist vision of existence, the Buddhist vision of life, of reality, unity does not obliterate difference. Difference does not obliterate unity. We can't help perceiving now one, now the other, but the enlightened mind sees unity and difference at one and the same time. It sees that you are all ineffaceably, uniquely yourselves, at the same time, it sees that you're all one, huh? and the one does not obstruct the other. You are one at the same time that you are yourselves, individually, and at the same time that you are yourselves individually, blossoming with all your idiosyncrasies, huh? at the same time you're all one. And the, these two, the unity and the, the difference, huh? the monism and the pluralism, these are not two different things. We don't say that they're one, mind you, but they're not two. And this, this all-distinguishing, this all-discriminating wisdom is symbolized by Amitabha, the infinite light, the red Buddha. Fifthly and lastly, the all-performing wisdom, the enlightened mind devotes itself to the welfare of all living beings, and in so doing it devises many skillful means of helping people, as they're called, and it does all this, it devises these skillful means, it helps living beings uh, naturally 
and spontaneously. We mustn't imagine the Bodhisattva or the enlightened mind as sort of sitting down one morning thinking, well, how can I go and help someone today? Let's think. Maybe I'll go and help so-and-so today. The enlightened mind doesn't function like that. It just functions freely, spontaneously, naturally. The helpfulness sort of pours forth in a flood but quite spontaneously, without any premeditation, without any intellectual working things out, weighing the pros and cons and thinking, well, is this person more in need of help or that, and trying to strike a sort of balance. So this all-performing wisdom is symbolized by Amoga Siddhi, the infallible success, the green Buddha. So these are the five knowledges or the five wisdoms which exhibit on the same level, as it were, different aspects of prajna, different aspects of wisdom. Now, we've dealt now with jhana and with prajna, uh, with meditation and with wisdom, separately. Hmm? as distinct paramitas. But it's time now to consider them together. Together. And this we shall do with the help of Huining or Wailang, the sixth patriarch of the Dhyana school in China. The Dhyana school is the Chan or the Zen school, of course. Uh, Hui Ning, the sixth patriarch, in the course of his platform scripture, a series of addresses to a body of people whom he very politely addresses as learned audience, has this to say on the subject of samadhi and prajna. He says... Learned audience, in my system, samadhi, which of course is the highest form of dhyana, samadhi and prajna are fundamental. But do not be under the wrong impression that these two are independent of each other, for they are inseparably united and are not two entities. Samadhi is the quintessence of prajna, while prajna is the activity of samadhi. At the very moment that we attain prajna, samadhi is therewith, and vice versa. If you understand this principle, you understand the equilibrium of samadhi and prajna. A disciple should not think that there is a distinction between samadhi begets prajna and prajna begets samadhi. To hold such an opinion would imply that there are two characteristics in the dharma learned audience to what are samadhi and prajna analogous they are analogous to a lamp and its light with the lamp there is light without it it would be dark the lamp is the quintessence of the light and the light is the expression of the lamp in name they are two things but in substance they are one and the same it is the same case with samadhi and prajna In other words, commenting upon this, we may say that samadhi, which represents the highest form of jhana, is the enlightened mind as it is in itself. Whereas prajna is its, what we may describe as, objective functioning. The enlightened mind at work in the world, as it were. We could even say that dhyana represents the subjective 
and prajna the objective aspect of enlightenment. We could say that, except that in enlightenment there's no subject and no object. Well, we've now completed our journey. Perhaps we are not just standing on the threshold of enlightenment, perhaps in imagination, in hopeful anticipation at least, we are now knocking on the gate. Perhaps the Buddha's listening. Perhaps he's ready to open the gate a little. Perhaps he's ready one day to let us in. We've seen how the Bodhisattva unites various pairs of opposites, the altruistic and the individualistic aspects of the spiritual life, the masculine and the feminine approaches. And we've seen today how the Bodhisattva unites the subjective and the objective poles, as it were, of spiritual experience at their very highest level. In other words, we've seen during the last three weeks, including today, how the Bodhisattva practices giving and uprightness, patience and vigor, meditation and wisdom. And these are, of course, the six paramitas or perfections or transcendental virtues which constitute the establishment <coughs> aspect of the bodhicitta. And it is, of course, upon the arising of the bodhicitta that one becomes, one is born as, a bodhisattva. So we've covered a very great deal of ground but there's still quite a bit of ground left to cover. And next week we shall be turning from the comparatively general, the comparatively abstract, to the more particular, the more individual, the more concrete. And we shall be considering the stages of the Bodhisattva path in terms of the actual persons who realize those stages. In other words, we shall be considering them in terms of the Bodhisattva hierarchy. And until then we remain standing, or kneeling perhaps, or perhaps even sitting in meditation on the threshold of enlightenment. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.